Well, good morning, everyone. I kind of feel like the second string now getting up here to open up the Word after those excellent opportunities to learn more about prayer. Well done, Sandra and Dan. Thank you for uh, leading us in the area of prayer. It was about two years ago that we put together a prayer team, and the vision behind the prayer team at our church is we don't want to be a church where prayer happens you know, segments of the church pray. There's people in the church that care about prayer. We want to be a praying church. And the the prayer team isn't just tasked with finding excellent content like that and bringing it before the church, but their job is really to enculturate prayer here, to where prayer happens not just in prayer meetings or just a moment in service, but where we, again, rely on prayer. We, we go to prayer where we grow in depth in our prayer. And that's why this series that we're looking at, Five Prayers That Matter, matters, because uh, we need to be a praying people. So if you would, why don't you open your Bibles with me? We're looking at Isaiah chapter 36. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, it's uh, found, it's about the midway point of the Bible. If you open your Bible to the halfway point, you'll find the Psalms You head in this direction, and uh, you'll come across Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then you should hit that first major prophet, Isaiah, and you're looking for Isaiah chapter 36. Now, this particular passage makes me think of two cousins that visit us very regularly. A lot of us struggle with these two cousins The first cousin really is a threat that is before us. The second cousin is a threat that we imagine. And these two cousins have names. Their names are fear and anxiety. And they visit many of us, like I said, very often. In fact, one author notes that the United States is now the most anxious nation in the world. And When you think about that, that is such an ironic and incredible statement. When you think about the prosperity that exists in the United States, the opportunity and the lack of threats, it's certainly not very regularly that someone would face realities such as starvation or even physical violence here. I, I recently came across an expression, I love idioms and expressions, And this one is to be a bird in a gilded cage. Are you guys familiar with that one? A bird in a gilded cage. It's a great expression. It means to live a life of wealth in luxury, but to be without freedom, happiness, or contentment. Could that be our problem? I'm not exactly sure if it's our total problem, but we do as a nation spend 300 billion dollars per year on treatment and also lack of productivity due to stress-related ailments. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about these two cousins, doesn't it? Fear and anxiety. Tons of verses, but I think we could distill those verses down to two commands. The first command is, do not be afraid. The second command is, be anxious for nothing. So you'd think if that is the reoccurring theme in the Bible, that Christians would live stress-free, fearless lives. 
but we don't. In fact, we know these two cousins all too well. For some reason, the words on the page do not meet up with our experience. And I'm not free from this either. I contend with these cousins. So how do we grow in this? Well, to learn something of this, we're going to take a look at it through the lens of prayer, and we're going to see that there's a moment in the life of an uh, an ancient king where he was forced to deal with these two cousins. Now, really, he's not dealing with a threat imagined. No, this king, Hezekiah, is dealing with full-on fear. The nation of Assyria is knocking on the doors of Jerusalem and saying, let me in. And there's really only two options that they're presenting before him. Either one, you surrender, or two, we're going to kill you. Now talk about fear. Let's take a little look at this. We'll look at it in Isaiah. Look at the first two verses, and you see the dilemma. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakin, which is basically a high-ranking military official, from Lachish, one of Israel's fortified cities, to Jerusalem. Now, Assyria is the dominant military power in this day. Later on in the history of the ancient Near East, it would be Babylon. But for right now, Assyria is the big bully on the block. And they have a couple of policies that were oppressive to the surrounding nations. One of the policies was this. If you will pay us tribute, then we will not come and invade and take you over. Now, the problem with that policy is their tributes were excessive. It would crush the economies of the nations. So when those nations no longer felt like living with the weight of the crush, they would rebel, and then Assyria's second policy was to come in and squash them like bugs, which then would enact their third policy, which was to take the people that remained after they came in and to place them in the surrounding area to deport them. Now, Hezekiah, the king, has just watched this happen to northern Israel. Syria's come in, and they've taken over Samaria. Let me give you a little background of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the son of the king Ahaz. He was a wicked man. Let me just encapsulate his wickedness through one of his main actions that was reprehensible in the eyes of God. He burned one of his children on the sacrificial altar. A despicable man leading this nation for 20 or so years. But for whatever reason, Hezekiah decides that he's not going to follow in his father's footsteps. He's seen where that path takes the nation. And so he is a good king. The scriptures say in 2 Kings 18, he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And listen to some of the things he does. He removes idols. He reinstitutes the right worship of God, and he even reintegrates the remaining people from the north back into Judah. As he's walking with God, he's also emboldened towards the nation of Assyria, because really there's two things at play here, isn't there? Assyria wants to rule over Jerusalem, but God also wants to rule over Jerusalem, and so who are you going to allow to rule as king? 
In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 7, it says, And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. And so for approximately 10 years, he is in rebellion. Assyria's got other problems to deal with. They say, oh, don't worry, we'll get to you next. And finally, the day of reckoning comes. Isaiah 36 is primarily a speech made by this military official at the gates of Jerusalem towards some of Hezekiah's officials. His strategy is simple. If he can get Hezekiah to surrender, then the Assyrians don't have to expend the resources of laying siege to this city, and they can apply those resources elsewhere. Now, they're willing. They'll do it if they have to, but he'd prefer not to, and so he applies psychological warfare in this speech. The core of the speech, as you'll see, is verses 4 and 5. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And then basically he moves on, and I'll summarize the rest of the speech for you, to deconstruct any kind of contingency that Hezekiah believes that he might have. It's a cold kind of logic. Verse 6, he asks, you think Egypt's going to come and protect you? Think anyone's going to save you? Egypt's like a staff that when you lean your weight on it, it's splintered and it'll come back and cut you. And then you look at verse 7, and he asks the question, do you really believe that you're right with God? Now, he doesn't really understand God like Hezekiah does, but he knows that it wasn't popular when Hezekiah went through and destroyed the high places. And so he's calling into question Hezekiah's commitment to God. Verse 8 deals with advanced technology. When he makes that statement about 2,000 horses and says, oh, I will give you 2,000 horses and you could put men on these horses and you can come out and fight with my weakest military official. But here's the problem. This is new technology. This is advanced stuff. You're only familiar with those old clunky chariots. You wouldn't be able to contest us. Didn't God send us, verse 10? Now he's citing potentially a previous prophecy of warning. Isn't this God's will that we're here right now? In verse 12, he tells them that the consequences for resisting will be very bad. And then in verse 16 and 17 says, but I can offer you real peace. If only you will go into captivity, then your life will get better. Finally, verses 18 to 20, no other nations, gods could withstand us. And the implication there is your God's not going to be able to withstand us either. Now, friends, I can think of no other exchange that better depicts fear's goal and fear's strategy in your life. You see, fear asks the same question. On what do you rest this trust of yours? And then fear, of course, comes in with psychological warfare and basically seeks to dismantle any of the contingencies. Now, here's the deal. Fear is Satan's number one strategy. Fear. He likes it when you're afraid. 
You know why? Because fear erodes confidence in God. If Satan can cause you to question God's goodness and God's abilities, just like he did in the garden, then of course he knows that he will have some level of control over you. Now listen, we all have fear. In fact, my question to you is, what is your greatest fear? What comes into your world and causes your confidence in God to erode? As I sit and talk with you today, for many of us, we might have different fears, but I think we really can boil them down to some common themes. For example, we fear rejection. Many of us want approval and acceptance, and as a result, we allow that to influence our decision-making. We also fear for our reputation. It's similar to rejection, but has more to do with how I want to view myself and how I want to be viewed by others. We fear failure. You know, failure can be different forms of failure, right? Financial failure, job failure, relational failure. failure. We fear catastrophe. And this can take on a relational component where we look at things like this global pandemic that's happening right now and we're constantly in fear for the people we love. We don't want anything to happen to them. Or it can take on a, a personal dimension where we're personally afraid. Everywhere we go, we're thinking through all the, the inevitables that could go wrong. And so we're catastrophizing our own lives in, in a way. Finally, is the ultimate unknown, which is death. Some of us greatly fear what happens before death, the pain, even the shame of death, the thought of dying without control over your physical body or being alone, or what happens after death. Some of us regularly struggle with the fear where we know that the Bible says that God's gracious and merciful, but we're afraid that when we die, we're not going to be standing for a gracious and merciful God. We're afraid that we're going to be standing before a harsh judge who's going to expose some hidden sin in our life that's, that's kept us from him. Now, don't get me wrong. We can't necessarily help that fear comes. Of course, fear is a feature of our life. It's something that we deal with. But the big question is, what are you going to do with that fear? Are you going to allow that fear to erode your confidence in God? Are you going to let that fear control you in such a way that you start making decisions that lack trust in God? Well, look at what Isaiah does with his fear. Now, he's clearly devastated by the threat. Look at Isaiah 31, 7, 1. It says, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth. Now, that in ancient Israel was a sign of deep mourning. He's being real about the situation. He knows that if this situation is merely a contest between military capabilities and military power between Jerusalem and Assyria, it's going to be a one-punch knockout. However, notice the second part of the verse. He went into the house of the Lord. He knew where to take that fear. He also knew that he could be honest with God about his 
fear. And so he sends this delegation to Isaiah and asks Isaiah to pray. In verse 3, he says with honesty, the day, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. It's hard to think of something more tragic than a mother conceiving a child and carrying that child to term, and then comes the point of birth, and there's no more strength left. Neither she loses her life or the child loses the child's life. You see, the point that Hezekiah is showing us here is that we can be real with God about our fears. It's an either-or situation. Either God shows up or Jerusalem falls. That military official has one point that's very correct. Hezekiah has no options right now. But that's just where God needs to take us in the life of faith. You see, God waits until we have no other options. That's when God can start working in our life because when the pressure's on, we tend to go into damage control mode. We try to exhaust our options. And this is just what Hezekiah does in this story. When you look at the story in 2 Kings, he, he drums up a large sum of money and he tries to buy off King Sennacherib. He even goes so far as to go into the temple of God and strip the gold from the temple of God so that he can buy Sennacherib off. But guess what? Sometimes you can't buy something off. Sennacherib's at the front door. He's knocking. He's saying, let me in. Have you ever come to a place in your life when you realized you had no options left? You were looking at your circumstances and you just went through the list of things, the normal comfort zones for us, and you thought to yourself, I can't buy this problem away. I have money, and I would throw a lot of money to make this problem go away, but I can't do it. And I've tried to find all the best resources and helps out there, and it's just not working. Or you, you try to pretend like it doesn't exist and I've watched people do this. They go through bad problems and then they start cutting people off from relationship from themselves and they try to pretend like they're living in an alternative universe where the problem isn't there, but here's the problem, it's still there. Or you try to find that latest and greatest secret technique that's going to fix it. You see this a lot of times when people go through terminal illness. They'll, they'll turn to some miracle cure. Only the miracle cure isn't there. Well, friend, God strips the options away so that you will realize, I will realize, that he's the only option. And he's only ever been the only option. And it's when Hezekiah comes to this realization that the Lord meets him with a message of hope. Look at verses 6 and 7. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now initially, after the Lord gives that prophecy, it seems like everything's going to go well for Hezekiah once again. 
As you look at verses 8 and 9, you see that a message comes and the Assyrian army's attention is diverted. So it seems like everything's going to be okay. Only the problem is, and this is true to life, fears tend to come and go. They tend to reemerge. And so Sennacherib sends a messenger to disabuse Hezekiah of any notion that he will not be coming back. And listen to his words, verses 10 through 12. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Has the God of the nations, the gods of the nations, delivered any of them? Now here is where we come to realize a big point. You see, this is no longer a contest between Sennacherib and Hezekiah. Did you read his words there? It is now a contest between Sennacherib and Hezekiah's God. And you see a change in disposition because God's reputation is on the line and Hezekiah understands this. And I love what he does next. Look at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and, and he spread it before the Lord. Do you see the change in disposition from earlier in chapter 37? He comes to the Lord's temple. He's wearing sackcloth. He is in the process of mourning. He's gripped by fear. Now, in this point, at verse 14, there's a confidence. He spreads the letter out before the Lord. He comes to the recognition that Sennacherib has made a declaration of war on his own God. And that fans the flames of faith in his heart. Now, here's a very important point that I want us to hear closely. Faith changes how we respond to our greatest fears. Let me say that one more time. Faith changes how we respond to our greatest fears. Like I said, fears come, but how I respond to those fears is determined by my faith. Fear is asking you that question. On what do you put your trust? On whom? So when you boil it down, if Satan is using fear in your life and he's leveraging fear in your life, it's not a contest between you and fear. What he's doing is he's setting up a contest between fear and God. And how are you going to respond to that? Are you going to trust God or are you going to cave to the fear? Well, Hezekiah confidently brings the letter before the Lord and he prays this incredible prayer. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. 
for they were no gods. But the works of men's hands wouldn't stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. I want to see three important aspects of this prayer. And as you pray, you can apply this into your prayer life. First, notice that he acknowledges the chain of command of the universe. He prays to God as the creator. He made heaven and earth. This is not a contest of equals. This is a contest between an ant and an elephant. You see, God created everything that we see, creato ex nihilo. It means that matter came from nothing because God spoke. Here's the thing. People can boast. They can make claims. But God's the creator. He's going to stay the creator. He's going to be eternally the creator. The psalmists look at this. uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 why do the nations rage? There's a lot of boasting out there, isn't there, at the governmental letter level, at the high leadership level, where people think of themselves as so important, prestigious, and big, and they, they rage. Psalm 2.4 shows us heaven's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs, because elephants do not fear ants. Second, He recognizes the flawed logic of removing God from the equation. He, notice, calls God the living God and says of the other gods, no gods. Do you know why we fear our circumstances? We fear them because God's not in the equation in our thinking right now. We've taken them out. And think about all the things that you struggle with, whether it has to do with job or finances or coronavirus pandemic or political unrest. All of those things produce fear if God's not in the equation. So Sennacherib comes at it from a secular standpoint. He says, well, all these other resources haven't been able to help, so therefore God can't. And Hezekiah says, big deal. You're missing the fundamental points. Those are just man-made objects, wooden stone. But God is not man-made. God made man. Three, he knows God will defend his own reputation, and this is the biggest point. If Sennacherib is calling God out, God will defend his own reputation. This is how the Lord works. Uh, He will not make a promise and not uphold that promise because his name's on the line. And he said that Assyria will not set foot in Jerusalem. In fact, in Isaiah 37, as you go into the next prophecy, he even says an arrow is not going to fly over that wall. So friends, as you look at the scriptures and you see the promises of God, that strengthens us with the realization that God defends his own reputation. He never makes a promise and breaks it because his name's on the line. Now, when you are visited by these cousins, do you pray like this? Do you acknowledge God as the creator? Do you put him into the equation where your problem is? Do you look back to the promises of God? And ultimately, here's the fundamental question that Isaiah is teaching us in this book. 
Do you completely trust him? Or are you putting your confidence in some lesser alternative? Let me show you just the the overall message of the book of Isaiah up to this point. It really has to do with that big question. Do you trust God or do you not? It's a binary choice. Either you do or you don't. Chapters 7 to 12, Isaiah shows us the rebuke of Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, because he's trusting in the nations. He's trusting in some alternative to God. And what are our alternatives? Well, our alternatives are things like government and science and progress and financial stability. In fact, we believe in progress so much that we believe that we have to colonize Mars in order to continue the human population. Now, as we continue in Isaiah, chapters 13 to 35, he explains that trusting me in alternatives is foolish. And then chapters 36 to 39 comes after those lessons with the big object lesson. And the object lesson is this. It's Sennacherib standing at the door of Jerusalem saying, let me in. And how's Hezekiah going to respond? Well, he passes the test with flying colors. He takes the letter into the temple of God, and he prays with confidence because of who God is. In the remainder of the chapter, if I'll summarize it to you, is God's response. Verses 21 to 29 is an oracle from God directed at Sennacherib. And the main message of that is, who do you think you are? I predetermined all of this in eternity past, and you think you're going to come knocking on my door and scare me? And then he meets Judah with hope, a tangible hope, that in the third season they would be able to plant crops because Assyria has come through like a plague of locusts and destroyed everything. And God said, you will plant, it will grow, and you will harvest again. And then almost as an afterthought, I love how this story ends. The Lord destroys 185 of Sennacherib's troops and sent him running like a dog with his tail tucked between his legs. Yeah, the details, who cares, right? Because it's no contest. No contest. So let's apply this to our spiritual lives when it comes to prayer by seeing three points as we close. The first spiritual implication concerning prayer is If you pray over the small matters, you will trust him in prayer with the bigger matters. Now remember, Hezekiah's greatest day of fear was not not this opportunity. This was not the first opportunity he had to trust God. He had to trust God in reforming a nation. Now by way of comparison, those decisions were smaller compared to the fear that he felt from Sennacherib. However, each decision that he made by faith along the way required faith. So all of those small decisions matter. I think sometimes in our spiritual life, we say to ourselves, you know, I'll handle the small things and then I'll wait to trust God for the bigger things. But the problem is, if you don't trust him in the small, you're not going to trust him in the big. And we have a way of boxing God out of our lives by managing our lives, overly managing our lives, so we don't have to trust him. One writer says, some of us plan our lives so carefully and provide for ourselves so fully that we never put God to the test. 
He has never had to demonstrate to us his special trustworthiness. And that's when we develop that bird in a gilded cage syndrome when the real bad day comes. Because we've never developed a spiritual backbone. Second, pray consistently with God's character and God's will. Hezekiah's prayer mattered because he knew God's character and God's will. Some of us don't know those things because we're not involving ourselves by studying God's revelation that tells us about his character and will. And God doesn't respond to those kinds of prayers. James says in James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. And we don't know God from his revelation, so we invent a God of our own making. And, and we think that his plans are our plans, but God doesn't respond to those kinds of prayers. No, he responds to the prayers where the prayer warrior is deeply invested in his ways, in his will. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Finally, and this is a big question for you today, have you brought your letter of fear before God? Your letter of fear. This, this question hit me like a thunderbolt this week, because I think we all are carrying letters of fear in our heart, and we're not doing what Hezekiah did. We're not laying them out before the Lord. I asked you the question, what is your greatest fear? What is it? If I was to be honest with you in this moment right now, my greatest fear, the letter that reads reoccurringly in my heart and in my mind is you are going to fail. You're going to fail. Doesn't matter how hard you try, doesn't matter how much you work, how much you invest yourself in this, you're going to fail. And it plays like a broken record. It, it repeats, it revisits on a weekly basis. So what am I going to do with that letter of fear? What are you going to do with your letter of fear? Well, my challenge to you this morning is to grab hold of it. Don't run away from it. Bring it before the Lord. He's been waiting He's been waiting for you to exhaust all your other options so that you know that you can bring that letter of fear to him. And, and he's waiting for you to be ready to put your full trust in him. And then he's waiting to come out on your behalf and defend you. <laughs> so let's do that today. Let's bring those letters of fear before the Lord right now in a moment of prayer, shall we? Father God, we thank you this morning for your holy word. We thank you for the message of Isaiah through the lens of the story of Hezekiah. We thank you that prayer matters, that our greatest fears matter to you, Lord, that we can bring them to you today. And I pray for each one here, Lord, because I, I do believe that we all have a different letter of fear that's written in our heart and our mind that plays on repeat, that influences our decisions, that erodes our confidence in you. And I just pray, God, right now, openly before everyone, I lay it out before you. Help us all to do that, to trust you implicitly, to know that you're bigger than our problem, to remember that elephants do not fear ants.
We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.